Welcome to the Behind the Goals podcast, the podcast about fans, for fans and by fans. Please welcome your hosts, Andrew Jenkin and Alan Russell. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of Behind the Goals. Um, This week, Andrew and I have been at the Football Collective Conference in Glasgow. Uh, It's an annual gathering of researchers, academics, people who are interested in football, um, maybe less on the sporting on-field side, but more on the off-field side, its social impact, its structure, uh, its history, um, and uh, you know the uh, kind of deeper topics surrounding football. Uh, it was held this year at Hamden Park, um, over two days. I, I unfortunately couldn't make the second day. Andrew was there for both, and he was pretty busy on the first day presenting as one of their academics um, in residence. Yeah. So how, did, yeah. how, did you find, how did you find your session, Andrew? Uh, well, we had a bit of technical issues, didn't we? Yeah. So um, that didn't help, I guess. But uh, once we got past that, I thought it was okay. Yeah. I have a, a habit, as, as you may have noticed on the podcast, of rambling. Not, uh, not so fair. hopefully it wasn't too much of a ramble, but I was sort of using the opportunity to sort of take a take a step back and just see where we've got to with fan ownership in Scotland yeah. and um you know, building on a lot of the stuff that we were talking about in the summit earlier this year about the fact yeah. we've now got a quarter of um, the SPFL Premiership teams that are either fan owned or, or on the route to being fan owned, and just sort of looking at what are the different factors that have played into into that being the case, the different environmental factors and mm-hmm. the uh, environment around Scottish football that has led to that that being the case. So it was really a little snapshot, and then a, trying to predict predict what the future holds as well. That's right. Yeah, well, I, I had the pleasure of being in the audience for your session. Um, not not just out of loyalty to you. It was an, it was an interesting session, and the other the other topics that were on in that same room and in, in that same uh, kind of one and a half hour slot of the day were the ones I wanted to see. So uh, it was good. Um, it was a, a you know a different uh, a different presentation on 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 the same on the same topic. So there was things that I, I wanted to steal from your from your slides straight away for next time I'm talking about it. So it was it was helpful there and, and really good. We'll maybe put those slides online for people at, yep. at, at some point and, uh, and and build on them. Um, yeah, you hit me with a last minute request the day before the, I did. the, the session uh, for a different cut of the data on fan ownership, which is an absolutely brilliant idea. And I just thought, oh, I can't do that in a day. Um, but it's yeah. it's uh, it's prompted me to start thinking about uh, a further development of the SDS index that's going to show you know how supporter ownership has changed over time. You know, you know the, the trends uh, at different clubs in Scotland over time. So that will be coming in a in a forthcoming. Um, enhancement to the Supporters Direct Scotland Index, so you know, worthwhile going to that conf- that conference just to get landed with another task. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to uh, sort of throw that upon you. Sort of eight pm the night before the, the, the presentation. Four pm. Four pm. Sorry. Um, I suppose my point was that uh, where where how has supporters shareholdings or supporters trust shareholdings in their respective clubs changed over time? And although I haven't done the the research I know Alan is capable of doing the research and I am not but being able to sort of see over 10 years how that shift how much more percentage I guess yeah. across the 42 clubs supporters trust yeah. now collectively hold which would really tell a tale in its own yeah, right I think absolutely. in terms of painting a picture for supporter involvement and and governance in this uh, episode we've got an interview with Josh McLeod who mm-hmm. gave the second presentation in the in the set of free workshops 
Um, and we've also got an interview with um, Richard Irving of our friends down south at Supporters Direct, a colleague there, but also undertaking a PhD at the University of Birkbeck. Um, and he's looking at the future of the Supporters Trust movement, which is mm-hmm. quite a timely um piece of research to be yeah. taking really his his presentation was titled uh, is this the end of the supporters trust movement which uh, you've got a theory about um, titles that are always questioned yeah like not really my theory i'm not i'm not trying to remember the uh, the rules it's um, some, somebody observed that whenever whenever the title of a of a media article or a piece of research has a question mark at the end the answer is no um, and I find I find this quite amusing when I see uh, you know, headlines in newspapers where there's a question mark at the end. I think, well, the answer is obviously no, and it, and it usually is. Mm. So, is this the end of the supporters trust movement? My very flippant answer would be no. No, based on <laughs> just all be, previous research. Be, yeah, <laughs> just based on the fact there's a question mark at the end of it. But yeah, but it'd be interesting to see if Richard's answer is the same. Is is it a no? Um, so obviously for this presentation you weren't able to join us because uh, Richard's presentation took part on the second day of the, the Football Collective conference so you were off sunnying yourself in Spain which we'll, we'll come on to yeah. later yeah. but uh, his, it was a very interesting piece of research that he's looking at and as you may be aware our friends down south supporters direct have recently announced that they'll be merging with the Football Supporters Federation uh, to come up with the title The Unified you know- the, I think it's United Football Supporters Organisation. United Org- Football, Football Supporters, Supporters Organisation. The the UFSO, so United, uh, an unidentified flying soccer object. <laughs> we love an acronym, don't yeah. we? Oofso. <laughs> All of these various acronyms flying around. Yeah, I don't know if that's a working title, if that's the permanent title. Um, it's, it sounds like there's still a lot to be worked out in terms of the exact shape of the organisation, yep. how they'll be structured, um, who'll sit where, what they will do. Um, possibly what they're called and, and brand and, and whether the Supporters Direct brand is still part of that and the Football Supporters Federation brand uh, as well, obviously, um, or if they'll have something entirely new. Mm. So it's it's still a bit of a uh, an area of development that we'll, we'll continue to look at. Mm. Um, and, and Richard's research was interesting because he started this research, I think he's in his fifth year now, he's doing it part-time, so he's been looking at this for a while, but obviously this new development has only recently emerged, so he's been looking at supporters' trust movement in general, but now this has given him a sort of a fresh angle to say, is this going to be a significant change in the sort of trajectory of supporters' trust? Are they still going to have the same um, support available? Um, I believe they probably will. I don't see that as any reason why the supporters trust movement should fall away Um, but it will be interesting to see I suppose only time will tell but we've got that interview with Richard and we ask him about fan ownership in England in comparison to to fan ownership in Scotland as well Um, the second uh, interview we've sorry the first interview we've got for you coming up is um, from Sean Huddleston who organised the Football Collective in which he tells us a little bit about the the organisation or sorry the collective itself in terms of how it came about and then the annual conferences that they have, uh, why they chose to have it in Scotland and um, just what it was like organising such a huge <laughs> conference with so many different speakers. There was yeah. so much stuff that you had to sort of, you couldn't go to everything you wanted to. Yeah, and I, I guess the overarching theme of the first day, certainly maybe in the second day as well, was watching Sean run around trying to get projectors to work. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed to be every room he stepped into, the projector stopped working. So, uh, you know, trying to beg, steal and borrow HDMI cables yeah. <laughs> and so on. Yeah, off university students, actually, that were there from the west of Scotland, mostly. But uh, yeah, no, it was a really good event. So um, so here we go. We'll line up the interview here with Sean. 
So, Sean, thank you so much for joining us. You've just organised a very successful conference. Tell us a little bit about the conference that we've had here at Hamden. <laughs> uh, it, is, it is everything under the sun studied through the prism of football. That's the best way I can put it. Um, we have had presentations on Argentinian football, Welsh football, British football in general, Irish football, Scottish football, obviously. Um, and people have travelled from Brazil, from Australia, from the States, uh, wider, wider Europe, um, all because they enjoy the camaraderie, the networking, and the environment that they can present in. Uh, it's been really good, it's been really successful, like you said. Uh, I don't know if I'll organise another one in a hurry right enough, though. <laughs> so um, you mentioned there uh, just the kind of the diversity of all the different speakers that you've had here over the last two days. How what's the process like in terms of getting all those submissions in and deciding, you know, who's going to speak in which slot? Well, uh, put it this way, nobody was rejected, um, and we made it a goal to facilitate everybody that submitted. That was our big objective. Um, it even necessitated us uh, renting another room uh, because there were so many presenters um, in, in obviously quite uh, limited time slots and spaces. Um, so it was just laborious, if you want to put it like that. But as, as you saw yourself from the, the range of different presentations and the quality of different presentations, it's all been worthwhile now, hasn't it? So. It certainly has. So, it's, um, what's it been like having it here at Hamden as well, home of Scottish football? Uh, that's 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 a good question, and, and that was the the biggest ambition I had was when myself and Dan were talking about where to have it, what type of place to host it in. I said, uh, "This is Glasgow. We do we do football up here, you know. Uh, you had the three biggest places on the planet that you could watch a football." football game in at the turn of the last century um, and I thought uh, Hamden was, was going to be a, a natural choice for that um, I could have picked other venues uh, but I would have got myself into trouble I think you know and uh, got to keep neutral now don't you sometimes so yeah. um, so just tell us a little bit about what the football collective is and you know what its purpose is uh, well uh, coming on from that uh, we had a very successful panel on race and racism in football and one of the questions posed to the Football Collective was from Professor Grant Jarvey, um, who basically said, um, as, as good as networking all is, um, what is the point if you don't have a point to your group, essentially, in, in so many words. Um, I thought he was missing the point to a certain degree in the sense that this is about as much, it's about as much about support, it's about networking, it's about collaboration, it's about meeting new people and, and even meeting old people that you've, you've known for, for, for a while. Um, it's about you know, providing uh, a support network as much as potential research and uh, various other opportunities that may arise. And, that, and, that, and that's good too and that's essential as well, you know, because yeah, you, you've got to have something like that, you've got to have targets. Um, but it's as much about support as it is academia itself, if you want to put it like that. Um, so that's, that's, that's always been, the, at least in my opinion, that's, that's always been one of the biggest ambitions the Football Collective has had. Um, we're all having to do more with less as well. So support networks like this become extremely vital in this day and age, I suppose.
So just finally, how big is the collective and what do you think the, the hopes are for the future with it? Uh, well, I think uh, Paul and Dan told me last count they did, last head count they did, there was over 300 members um, from all, all across the world. Um, where do we go from here? I think we just keep doing what we're doing. Um, don't, don't mess with the formula, as they say, you know. Uh, we're providing opportunities that people don't don't normally get. Um, we're also providing an environment that people don't normally get as well. As long as we keep doing that, that's that's the main thing, you know. So, Can I just thank you for organising what's been a brilliant two days? Thank you, Andrew. I'm pretty shallow. I'll take any compliments. So, yeah. <laughs> so there we go. That was Sean Huddleston, a member of the Football Collective and organiser of this year's Football Collective at Hampden Park. Uh, what a pleasant, pleasant chap he is as well. Yeah, yeah, he's good. Uh, yeah, the, despite my uh, slightly uh, kind of cruel ribbing about uh, projectors, they put on a brilliant event. Uh, oh, yeah. There's a lot of moving parts in such a big conference with so many speakers, so many parallel sessions going on, and to have even a, a semblance of it being organised is, is quite an achievement, and it was a lot more than a semblance of being organised. Mm. A great event, really well structured, and uh, um, a lot of moving parts that seemed to mesh quite well. Yeah, very much so. And kudos to Dan Parnell and Paul Woodrop that sort of initially founded the Football Collective as well. So it's sort of, I think they've got over 300 members now across the world, which is quite a feat for just a kind of couple of guys that are working in academia, passionate about football, want to see the game develop, um, try and bring more academics together to try and collectively develop the game, I guess. Yeah, that's right. There was a couple of challenges to the collective from from the panel as well. We had a couple of keynote sessions uh, one in the morning about the future of women's football, which I was particularly interested in. Um, and there was one in the afternoon about the issue of race within sport as well. So both were kind of uh, sort of challenges put down to, to people working within higher education, I guess, mm-hmm. as how do we how do we take both of these issues forward and sort of uh, tackle the, the divides of gender and race within yeah. sport, which are still pretty huge. Yeah, that's right. Um, so the second session, the second interview we've got for you is uh, with Josh McLeod, who who followed uh, me in the, the first session of the day on the Thursday, mm-hmm. talking about um, some research that uh, we'd worked with him on, uh, looking at the issue of fan directors in Scotland. Yeah. So he'd done his um, undergrad, sorry, his master's research around directors of football clubs in general and is now working as a, a lecturer down at um, Wembley. Uh, and is now doing a paper around maximising, I think you've got the, the exact title yeah, there. Yeah, maximising the effectiveness of fan directors in Scottish football. Um, you know, part of the presentation was about, you know, how do you actually you get, how do you have them be as, as effective as possible as a director, but also keep their connection to supporters uh, and, and manage that, what can sometimes appear to be a conflict of interest of, of keeping supporters in, uh, involved and informed but also respecting confidentiality and commercial, um, you know, is- issues as they as they sit in the boardroom, uh, and through in in that research, uh, he's 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 talked to a lot of the fan directors around Scotland, find out how it's going for them, um, and and really based in based in, in practical experience rather than than theory, mm. um, I find it a very 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 interesting discussion, um, and want to follow up with them a little bit more. Uh, than, than, than I had a chance to in the sort of 20, 25 minutes of his, of his presentation. Mm, very much so. Yeah, so here he, here he is himself. Uh, we've put a couple of questions to him after his presentation. Here's Josh. So, Josh, um, 
tell us a little bit about the the paper you presented yesterday here at the Football Collective. Yeah, so the, the paper that I presented yesterday was on fan directors on Scottish football club boards uh, with a specific focus at looking at how they can maximise their effectiveness and, and what is a quite challenging role. Um, as you well know, it's a project that I've been working on with yourself. Uh, I've been exposed to the issue of fan representation on boards for about three years since I started my PhD, but it's only been this year where my research efforts have been focused on that uh, and more specifically. Um, the background to the research is that fan directors, there is a, a suggestion that they have an inherent conflict of interest in their role. So on one hand, they have the fiduciary duties to the company and they have a board of directors who make very clear to those fan directors that matters discussed on the board are, or many of the matters discussed on the board are commercially sensitive. On the other hand, the fan directors have a responsibility to the supporters as a representative of the supporters to have a dialogue with them and, and to represent their interests on the board but also have a dialogue with them in terms of communicating to them what is happening within the club and there can be and there's been occasions in the past where that's presented a conflict of interest on behalf of the fan director uh, where fans might want more information around what players are coming in in the January or summer transfer windows, what sponsors are associated with the club and a lot of those matters can be commercially sensitive and so that has at times created a conflict of interest and what we are interested in, in doing is trying to help fan directors and work out how they can perform their role uh, in the most effective way uh, because there has been examples of fan directorship and fan representation not working particularly well in some football clubs whereas in other football clubs there has been examples of it working very well and the, the basis of this research is to try and establish how can we make this model work effectively for all clubs in Scottish football. So um, you mentioned some of the some of the on occasions that it hasn't gone particularly well. Um, first, let's start with the, let's start with the positives. What are the benefits of having fan representation? <laughs> I think there's there's two benefits that I talked about yesterday in my presentation, and the first benefit is around insight. So if you have a fan director on the board who is elected via a supporters trust they are likely to have uh, strong relations to that supporter body, uh, which might be at some level representative of supporters more widely. And that can give, those kinds of individuals are connected to the fans of the club uh, in a way that other directors on the board probably are not. And as a result of that, they can give you insight into what the fans think. And bear in mind that in Scottish football, we don't make a lot of money from broadcasters. We don't make a lot of money from commercial sponsors. The vast majority of money that Scottish football clubs make is from ticket revenue that comes directly from the fans. And if you have an individual that can give you an insight into what the fans think, what they, what they think about certain decisions that the club might make, um, that can help the club at board level uh, make effective decisions. Uh, secondly, I think that there is a suggestion that fan representation and fan engagement more broadly can have a directly positive impact on the commercial success of a football club. And there's been examples of 
many football clubs in Scotland taking an approach to their supporters where they're more open about how they engage with them. They give them representation on boards. They give them a stake in ownership. They generally give them a say in how how the football club is run. Uh, and as a result of that, supporters start to think, you know, I quite like this. This feels like my club. You know what? And this is an oversimplification here, but I'm going to go and buy a ticket and go and support my club this weekend. I might even buy a scarf uh, and a, a shirt too. Uh, so there is a suggestion that just being open with fans and giving them representation on boards, that that can lead to commercial benefits directly. So you mentioned that the purpose of this research was to help fan directors um, and that there have been a few issues in the past. Perhaps you could just discuss what some of the problems have been and why they need a, a bit more support. So why they need more support. And it comes back to that issue about the conflict of interest and how challenging that can be. And there, if the other directors are on the board perceive the fan director to have a conflict of interest, it can be very easy for a lot of the directors on boards, chairmen, chief executives, to take the approach, well, you know what, we're just going to keep the important matters to ourselves. probably won't discuss that in the presence with the fan director. And when you have that situation where the fan director is completely bypassed, uh, their, their role is completely nullified. And in fact, it, it becomes a pointless and perhaps damaging impact on the club. Uh, because the governance process is disrupted, board dynamics is disrupted and it's not a good position for the fan director to be in because they can't actually do their job properly and it's not a good position for the club to be in either uh, because it creates an environment of mistrust. So what have uh, some of the findings been in terms of how we can maximise the effectiveness of, of supported directors? Sure, so uh, there, there are a number of there is a number of things that supporters trusts can do and football clubs can do, I think, to make fan representation work better on boards. The first thing is, in order for it to work effectively, you, you need to get buy-in from all, from all uh, of the actors involved in a football club. And, and this is the most simple and obvious uh, element of looking at effective fan representation. Uh, but it's the most important too, because if you have chief executives and chairmen and other leaders of the board who simply do not want uh, the fan director there, they don't believe in the concept, they don't trust the concept or they don't trust the individual, uh, then it is doomed from the start. Um, so you need to get buy-in and that, that's a case, that, that buy-in comes from communicating with those individuals, um, convincing them that the presence of a fan director can be beneficial for the club. So emphasising the direct commercial benefits it can have. Emphasising the insight that fan directors can give you that other directors on board perhaps can't give you. Um, so it's emphasising that to them and that will give you uh, buy-in from the board side and it can make the model work more effectively. So that's at the broad level, uh, but there's other factors too and perhaps more practical things that fan directors uh, can do to, to help maximise their effectiveness. And I think one of those is bringing additional skills to the board. Now, the job of a fan representative is to represent the interests of the fans first and foremost. Uh, but if that fan director can also bring financial expertise, legal expertise, or even construction expertise, which is important for a lot of Scottish football clubs, then that will actually help the fan director gain legitimacy on the board far quicker than if they didn't bring any of those skills at all, if they were just representing the fans' interests and, and didn't necessarily bring other skills and insight to the board. So I think bringing additional skills, whatever they may be, can help the fan director gain legitimacy and speed up the process uh, of building trust and building a cohesive environment 
and then ultimately that means they can represent the interests of the fans more effectively. Other things, um, I think that having two fan directors on the board can help. Um, a criticism that's often levelled at fan representation is that fan directors will do the role for about six months and then they fall into the pocket of the chief executive or the chairman. Um, I think you can mitigate that risk by having two fan directors on the board. Uh, they can back each other up on the board. Uh, and have a more unified and powerful voice in the boardroom uh, but they can also perhaps police each other um, if the fan director isn't performing necessarily effectively and I think that corporate experience helps I mean when you think about what the fan director is doing they're taking a legal responsibility to a company uh, that has a lot of stakeholders and there's important responsibilities that come with that and you are operating in a corporate environment and if you have experience of navigating through corporate environments, of being on corporate boards, I think that helps fan directors transition into the role more seamlessly. And there have been cases where some fan directors have described the experience of being on a board as quite intimidating, um, quite difficult and challenging. But I think individuals who come from a corporate background, uh, or not necessarily from a corporate background, but have experience of being on boards, um, that can make the transition easier for them. Okay, and so just finally, what does the state of play look like in terms of supported directors or fan directors in Scotland look like just now? So. There are a lot of clubs that have fan directors on Scottish Football Club boards. You know better than I do about the, the SDS index that was released last year. Yep. Was that now last year? Yep. Uh, and that showed that 18 clubs out of 42 clubs in the SBFL have fan directors on the board. So that's a significant part of the government of almost 50% of Scottish football clubs. So I don't think the, the model of fan representation can be underestimated in terms of a really critical part of how nearly most of Scottish football clubs are run. Uh, so it's a really important element. I think there are examples of it working extremely well. I still think there are issues that need to be worked through. Uh, although I absolutely believe in the benefits of fan representation, I think most clubs should be aiming to have fan directors on the board. Um, I think that we all need to be cognizant of the issues that come with it and try to ensure that we uh, manage those difficulties and challenges and make sure that we can get the right policies, procedures and best practice in place uh, to help all Scottish football clubs manage this uh, governance model uh, in the best way. Thank you very much, Josh. Thank you, Andrew. OK, so next interview we're going to hear from is with Richard Irving, uh, our colleague from Supporters Direct Down South. Uh, whose uh, whose presentation was called "Is this the beginning of the end for the support to trust movement?" In brackets, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't have the brackets, obviously. No. So it may it may be the beginning of the end for the support to trust movement. So uh, uh, I, w I wasn't able to attend his, his session on the Friday morning as I was as I was travelling. So yeah. what did you take away from that? Andrew? Well, um, so he was there with his his supervisor, and they were sort of playing good cop bad cop, I think, to some extent. So um, Richard was the slightly more optimistic figure, and his uh, supervisor Jeff uh, was it Jeff? Sorry, Jeff, Jeff Walters. Jeff Walters was um, playing the kind of um, I think devil's advocate to, to sort yes. of challenge the status quo. Yes, exactly. He was just he saying was yes. yes. Richard was no. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, so this was a, a really interesting presentation, and and it does ask a lot of questions about the future of. Um, 
the organization i guess it was it seemed to be very focused on the merger between sd and the fsf which was interesting but it did highlight just the huge success that supporters direct in england and wales certainly have have had in terms of the number of trusts that they've helped form um the the advice they've been able to offer to them um so we spoke to richard about his research and and sort of uh, the success that fan ownership has had in england as well Joined now by Richard. Richard, you gave a very interesting presentation today here at the Football Collective Day 2. Could you perhaps just give a, a, a brief overview of what it is that you discussed here? Yeah, so I've um, been looking at, um, in my research, the um, history of uh, the Supporters Trust movement, supporter ownership, and really looking to establish a couple of things. One is whether um, the model has actually worked uh, within football, pr- predominantly in England and Wales. Um, and what the future is for it um, and are looking at the sustainability around supporter-owned clubs, supporters' trusts, etc. Um, also been um, looking at um, the impact of the merger potentially on um, the work of Supporters Direct um, and how that's going to affect clubs, uh, community-owned clubs and uh, supporters' trusts in the future. So alongside my, uh, my colleague Jeff Walters, we've uh, been uh, sort of toing and froing with a few ideas as to where that, uh, where, where that may all end up. Yeah, and you had to sort of one more positive and one more negative outlook on the future of the movement. Perhaps you could just run us through those two scenarios. Yeah, so uh, Jeff was playing uh, devil's advocate somewhat um, uh, within the uh, the presentation in that uh, he is concerned about um, within the new organisation the sustainability um, and perhaps the dilution of the work of uh, Supporters Direct. And my argument uh, is that uh, the work will naturally continue. There's a lot of work still to be done. Uh, there are always crises happening at clubs. Uh, there's mismanagement. There's bad governance. Uh, and all of these, uh, all of these things that mean that we will naturally have to continue. And um, the work, uh, uh, the good work that we've done over the last 18 years, um, hopefully, will continue. And you cited a couple of interesting um, examples of things that might springboard the kind of. We haven't had a, a top-level club in England go into supporter ownership, but you gave some interesting scenarios or examples of things that might happen. Perhaps you could run us through them. Yeah, I, th- I thought um, you know, uh, I wanted to. to be a little controversial I guess so uh, but I, I believe that there are um, clubs at the top level that are or have been recently quite vulnerable I painted a scenario of perhaps a catastrophic failure um, I painted a scenario of um, a club that's perhaps existing in um, as the only club in a major city uh, being one that could perhaps be naturally one that is taken over um, Newcastle as I cited and maybe a Leeds United or, or, or one of those type clubs in the future and I thought I, I looked at the sort of government legislation that could come in to really assist the um, supporter ownership uh, movement as well so there's um, un- undoubtedly all sorts of different um, scenarios and, and the final one probably the most controversial was the uh, the bursting of the Premier League bubble which I don't think anybody particularly anticipates but is uh, is something that is always worth putting out there, I think, uh, for, for uh, you know, people to think about. Um, and obviously we're here in Glasgow today. I, I gave a presentation yesterday on sport ownership in Scotland. Yeah. I'm interested to get your thoughts on what you think, that how, how you would compare the two sort of countries and how the movement has developed in the rest of the UK and Scotland. Yeah, I think um, your, your presentation uh, covered exactly the areas that 
um, the community ownership is strongest. Uh, Scottish clubs, I think, are very much part of their communities. Um, they're quite small communities. I think that has a natural um, ability to create a community-owned club. I think that um, you also highlighted the fact that um, the, uh, and I think um, Josh McLeod also highlights the fact that um, benefactors are a little few and far between in Scottish football now, particularly for those smaller clubs. And I think that the fans are absolutely the way forward as far as ownership in, uh, in, in Scottish football is concerned. I think it's, it is a natural progression, I really do. Well, thank you very much for joining us. No problem. Thanks very much. OK, so there we go. That was Richard Irving of Supporters Direct. He's also doing his PhD. Um, fascinating stuff. Now, unfortunately, Alan, you weren't able to join us on the Friday and hear that in the flesh. Yeah. Because you were off sunnying yourself. Yeah, I was, I was off for a little holiday. Um, no, it was the Supporters Direct Europe AGM on on the Saturday uh, in Huelva in southwest Spain in Andalusia, one of my favourite places. So I was, I was not unhappy to be going. Um, but it's, it is a very difficult place to get to um, from Scotland. Um, so there isn't a direct flight anywhere there. There wasn't even a simple connecting flight that I could have been there for part of the Friday. So I, I got up at five o'clock in the morning, drove to Glasgow Airport, um, and I finally got to, to Huelva at 10 p.m. So a bit of a marathon day via, um, um, via Dublin and Seville, um, uh, but not a bad journey. Uh, but it was being hosted by Recreativo Huelva uh, and their trust. Uh, so Recreativo are the oldest professional football team in Spain, um, set up by two Scots uh, in 1889. Um, so there was, they're, they're not the first football team in Spain. The first football team in Spain was also in the same area, set up by the same people, and it was a, it was a mining company team. Uh, the Rio Tinto Mining Company uh, were, were, uh, were, were, based, uh, were, were set up just outside Huelva uh, in this remote corner of southwest Spain. Um, a couple of years that they were playing football there just as, a, as an amateur works team uh, and also you know playing tennis and golf that they introduced to Spain. Um, so probably wow. uh, Nadal and, uh, and Seve Ballesteros um, and, you know, and, the, and the multitude of, of Spanish football players that we're all familiar with. Um, that all starts with Recreativo Huelva and um, William Mackay and Charles Adam uh, were the two, two of the founders um, of, the, of, of the team there. Absolutely fascinating story that uh, that I missed, unfortunately, because I was travelling on the Friday. I didn't get there until after the uh, the dinner that was there to welcome us all to Huelva. Um, but the club ambassador at Recreativo Huelva is a, a young woman called Charlotte Mackay, uh, who knew nothing of her great-great-grandfather, or maybe great-grandfather, well, no, probably great-great-grandfather. She knew nothing of his story until 2010, when she was watching the uh, the World Cup final. Um, and as Spain lifted the World Cup final, her dad said to her, do you know, this is a story that starts with our family. And he'd only found out, you know, a few months previously through the, the Recreativo historian uh, that the club had been set up by, by William Mackay back in the, in the late 1880s. Um, so they were watching uh, the, you know, the, 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 cup final, uh, the World Cup being lifted by Spanish players and that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for, for their family. So Charlotte decided she wanted to, 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 to visit Huelva and, and, and see the stadium and find out a little bit more about it. Went out there. Uh, loved it so much that she decided to stay. So, she, so she's now a club ambassador. Uh, she lives there permanently. She's uh, you know, studying a teaching qualification. Um, I, 
I think she's she's uh, one of their support liaison officers. Um, but apparently, when she walks around Huelva, um, she's treated like the queen. <laughs> she's she's royalty in this little town, and it's a it's just it's a lovely town, a lovely atmosphere. The trust there were 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 so welcoming, so happy to see us. Um, you know, fortunately, uh, the the game that was meant to be on Sunday evening had got re- rescheduled to the Saturday evening at five p.m. So they're in the this uh, Secunda B, uh, the third tier of, of Spanish football, and they were playing. Uh, against Seville's B team, and Seville are currently top of La Liga. Um, so, but their B team are, are down in the third division, as, as it's appropriate for a B team. Um, and uh, Huelva beat them two one. Great match, really nice atmosphere, lovely crowd, lovely people there. Um, we got to see around the museum afterwards. Um, taken to the taken to the club shop, uh, bought our body weight in merchandise. What did you buy? Uh, I got their second strip, um, lovely sort of deep red strip with one of the things that, you know, actually two features that are my, that they really tick all my boxes for, for, um, for football strips. Uh, diagonal stripes on the front mm. and no sponsors logo. No sponsors? No sponsor logo. Um, it's a beautiful strip, so you'll see it at Five Side Football <laughs> next week. <laughs> um, but yeah, a, a, a great trip there. Um, but we were there for the Supporters Direct Europe AGM. <clears throat> and some workshops in the afternoon. Um, uh, last year, it was was the first of their AGMs that I went to as uh, as Sports Direct Scotland joined and, and, and became members of SD Europe in, in our own right. Um, so, you know, following up there this year, um, catching up with people, um, hearing what was going on. I got lumbered with the job of taking minutes of the AGM, um, which was a joy. <laughs> and then some workshops around volunteering, uh, around, um, you know, s- developing your club's winning story uh, and there was also another workshop that got um, curtailed um, because we ran out of time because of the length of, of, of time it takes to eat lunch in Spain <laughs> <laughs> which we didn't, didn't quite get the, the full experience of but, but a, you know a, a thoroughly worthwhile trip there to uh, uh, to meet and connect with people from around Europe yeah um, it's great great for SD Scotland to be a member of SD Europe and to be able to tap into that European network i suppose similar to the collective you know having that network of people that you can go and hear from and learn about and just all that shared knowledge that's, that's ticking right. about that you wouldn't otherwise be able to right. sort of access yeah and we're we're there representing our member-owned clubs in scotland um so um uh, yeah it's a mixture of members of support direct europe of national associations and member-owned clubs where there isn't a national supporters association um, so it, we, there was a few, a few groups there from national associations like ours, but a few from member-owned clubs um, who were sharing the story there on. Um, so, you know, really fascinating, fascinating stuff. Um, so we'll make as much of this knowledge that we gathered there available to, to our members, um, particularly our member-owned clubs, but, but also trusts who are, who are members of Supporters Direct Scotland. Um, we'll try and package this, this information up and, and, and help you get access to that. That may be through podcast episodes, um, you know, reaching out to some of the people that we that I met across in Huelva uh, and having them you know, share a little bit more about what they covered. Um, but also, if there's, if there's materials, we'll distribute those and make those available to you as well. Um, it's a great group to be involved in and a, a real honour to, uh, to go out there and, uh, and, and to meet them all. Lovely stuff. Okay. Um, that pretty much brings us to a close for this week. Um, although if you tuned in, having listened to last week's and expecting to hear Bobby Williamson, we've saved that for next week's episode. So that's okay. in the bank. We've locked and stored that. That's that's a that's a treat for your ears yeah. next week. So um, come back then and, and check that one out. But uh, until then, uh, enjoy your football and uh, see you then. Yeah, have a good winning week. <laughs> Behind the Goals is a Supporters Direct Scotland podcast. 
You can get in touch with the show by emailing behindthegoals at hotmail.com or you can also tweet the show at SupDirectScott. That's S-U-P-P Direct Scott. 